0: Hello, I'm Paul Major from Bellevue Asset Management, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the third edition of our series of healthcare investing podcasts. We have spent the last two and a half years living through a pandemic, and so today we will be discussing the important question of whether or not we are now living in a post-COVID world. Clearly, if we are post-COVID, then we can once again begin to consider this sector on its fundamental merits of demographic demand and incremental innovation. If not, we need to be thinking still about the healthcare macro, and the capacity constraints that a pandemic emergency necessitates around the provision of care. One thing we will definitely not be discussing is monkeypox. I'm again joined by Professor Justin Stebbing. Many of you will know Justin as a world leading oncology researcher, the editor of Nature's cancer journal Oncogene and the author of 700 papers and counting. He was also previously chairman of Bellevue Healthcare Trust and a longstanding member of its board. Quite where he finds the time for all of this should probably be a discussion in itself. What many of you may be less aware of is Justin's expertise in studying viruses. Many of his research papers were on HIV and viruses that live with us, such as herpes virus, and our immune response to them. A large body of his work showed that in patients with HIV-related cancers treating the HIV in turn treats the cancer. His natural interest in pathogens led him to take up the mantle of researching COVID. And in January 2020, he published a paper in The Lancet describing the use of artificial intelligence to find a readily available drug that could be effectively used to treat COVID. That drug was baricitinib. The AI predicted not only anti-cytokine effects, but also antiviral effects using benevolent AI's technology. He then led many of the mechanistic studies, working in collaboration with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. That's the body in the US that's run by Anthony Fauci and the drug's commercial supplier, Eli Lilly. Baricitinib received an emergency use authorization from the FDA in November 2020. Subsequent trials, including Imperial College's famous recovery study, have confirmed it to have the greatest mortality reductions in hospitalized COVID patients requiring oxygen. On top of all of this, Justin has also written a book about the pandemic called Witness to COVID. I cannot really think of anyone more qualified to discuss this topic with. So with that being said, let's get into the discussion. Justin, welcome. Thanks, Paul. So firstly, can I ask you, if we, if we ignore countries like China and North Korea, Would you agree with the widely expressed view that COVID is now an endemic infection and thus the pandemic
1: is over? Yes, I would agree with that. Although it's very difficult to ignore countries such as China, considering its importance in the supply chain, the fact that they have a largely unexposed population. Many such as myself would argue a poorly vaccinated elderly population. Only last week we saw a paper in Nature with authors from Maryland but also authors from Fudan University in Shanghai predicting that opening up China would result in at least 1.5 million deaths at the moment. And although that's a small proportion of their population, the absolute numbers are enormous. So it's difficult to ignore that. We do live with it, but it's also difficult to ignore what's going on in individual countries Because there's not so much testing or reporting in the US, some estimates put the daily rate of infections at over a million. Yesterday, there were 105,000 infections. Many people using wastewater surveillance and other metrics suggest that they're peaking there, but I don't quite see that at the moment. What is clear is that because of vaccines and repeated exposures, I would suggest the vaccines the mortality rates and the incidence of severe disease requiring hospitalisation has just fallen through the floor. So in that respect, yes, we're living with it. But I would still say it's probably still twice as bad as the flu.
0: Sure. And, and you know, you touched on China. We've seen some interesting differences. We're almost in a sort of two-speed 2, two speed world now. So one of the other things that you read a lot in the in, in the media, and you touched on this with the reference to flu, is this idea that Omicron is somehow less severe than the original strains of of, of covid that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic but if you look at what happened in korea and in china particularly in hong kong where as you say you had a largely unvaccinated population you had strategies that suppressed circulation of the virus so innate immunity was very very low what we actually saw particularly in hong kong was actually quite a significant wave of mortality so what's the reality of this, this notion that Omicron is somehow less virulent than the original strains of COVID?
1: So just touching on Hong Kong, it was incredible what happened there because they were regarded like other countries like Singapore, Taiwan, Vietnam, as forerunners of preventing the pandemic for two years. And then we had a wave where the case fatality rate was probably about 4%. Where elderly people were dying, and we heard stories like we heard from Milan in April 2020, even the NHS here of patients in corridors. Um, structurally, we have alpha, beta, gamma, delta, which are all quite similar. And then we have Omicron with its various variants and subvariants where some people think. The last one, BA12112, should be called SARS-CoV-3, but I'm going to leave that aside. So you have Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, then you have Omicron. And there's no question that because of our previous exposures and vaccination, Omicron is more mild. Now, is the virus more mild or the fact it's not new to us that makes it more mild? I would suggest that the fact is it's not new to us because of vaccination, previous infections, that makes it more mild. Therefore, in China, because it's new to them and it's so transmissible, it is a massive problem. Also, you made the point that as viruses go on, they become less mild. Well, you don't see that for HIV. You don't see that for influenza. You don't see it for Ebola. Even with HIV, there was an outbreak in Holland last year, which was incredibly pathogenic and severe, even with modern antiretrovirals. And even with SARS-CoV-2, with the Delta epidemic at the end, that was more severe, despite vaccination and so on, that was more severe than Alpha, Beta and Gamma. So although Omicron does seem milder, I think that's because of our exposures. And I would liken Omicron in China to the original Wuhan strain in terms of its case fatality ratios and so on. So I don't see any evidence that it's getting milder, even though it is becoming more transmissible. Biologically, you can think of it on corners of a triangle. You have transmissibility on one corner. You have vaccine or immune evasiveness on another corner. And then you have disease severity or virulence on another corner. Now it's pretty unusual for all three to rise together biologically. So you normally maybe will have something more transmissible and less virulent. And maybe that is the case for the, this latest sub-variant. But going forwards, I don't think we can predict how the different corners of the triangle will change.
0: And that brings us on to North Korea, which in some ways is... is um uh, one has to be careful about the language one chooses, but this is, in some ways, the ultimate petri dish of, of of working all this out because they haven't vaccinated anybody, they haven't had, or at least they claim they haven't had any natural exposure, and now they're in the in the midst of a significant wave of of omicron spreading through the country. They don't have the healthcare infrastructure to to, to cope with it. So, I mean, we
1: don't know what the variant is. There to be clear, they don't have tests. I think if you look on testing websites. They've done 64,000 COVID tests thus far. They announced one case of fever recently. And then the next day, they announced something like 350,000 cases, including a lot of deaths. But we, do, we, don't, we don't have a clue what's going on there. They refused, interestingly, China's vaccine, um, Sinovac, which was offered to them by the WHO. And I think they saw the WHO as some kind of tool of the West or something like that, when clearly it isn't. Um, It's a desperate situation, but what the facts are from there is going to be a big unknown. Even the South Korea have offered them help um, recently in press conferences, and obviously they've refused that. So one of the other things that's been
0: said a lot in the media and, and by some epidemiologists is this notion that we have to preventatively vaccinate the whole world, not just to, to reduce morbidity and mortality, but also to suppress the evolution of the virus. And of course, this situation in North Korea is, is, is the worst case scenario in that regard because we don't have healthcare provision which is terrible for the people that live there but we also don't as you say have vaccination and the, the, the suppression
1: strategy is probably quite poor as well. I, I think the suppression strategy in terms of quarantine is probably quite good if anyone gets a fever but of course a lot of transmission occurs asymptomatically. Exactly
0: and, and you don't necessarily have the infrastructure to to, as you say identify asymptomatic cases because they don't have mass testing and, and, and all the other things. So so if you, if you think about those sort of doomsday comments that some epidemiologists came out with, is North Korea the, the sort of ground zero of potentially the perfect place for, 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 for the coronavirus to, to, um, to, to, to evolve, to, to reach that optimum kind of spread versus... versus um,
1: uh, I, I don't actually think so because what will probably happen in North Korea based on the pre-vaccine epidemics in the West is the virus will come along, infect a lot of people, tragically kill a lot of people, and then the wave will go away to be followed up by subsequent waves. In terms of Petri dishes for the future, for me, the case reports of viruses living and mutating within immunocompromised individuals for months on end and repeated PCRs identifying different viruses over time, where those different viruses can potentially recombine is, is much more real for me. And the world now you know, Asia in particular, and China, if you like, definitely has a toolkit to lock to lock things down. Mm-hmm. Um, but wi- when you think of exponential spread from places, and different populations mixing. That's where I see a bigger problem. And that, we, that even the Chinese test and trace system can't handle multiple exponential outbreaks in multiple locations occurring simultaneously. It's very good at an individual situation. And to me, it's recombination and different viruses within an individual, and then it's populations with different viruses mixing. It's not a single country with a single strain coming and then going. Particularly not one that
0: doesn't mix with the rest of the world in terms of international travel and open borders and those things. Exactly
1: correct. And maybe China's that case as well, although travel is occurring and they recently relaxed some of the travel requirements.
0: Now, perhaps onto a subject that I've tried to explain to people, but I'm sure you can do a much, much better job than I can, which is... If we look at the history of vaccination for, for, for coronavirus, you know, it's amazing we got these mRNA vaccines um, developed and approved in record time. And they were obviously initially developed against the W1 strain, the original strain out of, out of Wuhan in China. And subsequently, we've had, you know, beta variant, um, delta variant, and, and omicron variant vaccines evaluated, but never launched for the simple reason that they, they, they don't seem to convey significant amounts of uh, of additional protection versus the... Existing vaccines that we had. Now, there's the, the, the whole complicated thing about original antigenic sin and all those things that maybe you can explain uh, more clearly than I could. But, but there's another interesting question for for healthcare investors here, which is, you know, will there be another version of these of these vaccines? Do Do you think it, it just happens that this is has not been important up to now, or is it, is this setting a template that's going to be the case for many years to come?
1: So. The original Wuhan strain was published, as you mentioned, in mid-January. And by April 2020, Moderna at the NIH with Anthony Fauci's team had put a vaccine into people. By February 2020, the original Wuhan strain had changed to incorporate a particular mutation in the spike, D614G. There's 1,273 amino acids in the spike. That's why the Moderna vaccine is called MIR-1273. And so D614G refers to an amino acid change at position 614 from D to G, and you can look up what those stand for. Now, it turned out that against W1, those vaccines protected against alpha, beta, gamma, delta, because they're quite similar to W1 As I mentioned earlier, Omicron is very different structurally. 33 spike mutations, yada, yada, yada. And that's why the vaccines haven't given us very good protection and people get Omicron infections, but they don't become sick or require hospitalization, nor do they die because we've been vaccinated. But the vaccines just aren't quite good enough to prevent infections, whereas previously they were very good at that. But that's why Pfizer and Moderna are making Omicron-specific vaccines. So going forwards, we're going to potentially have triplet vaccines say, against Omicron flu and RSV or doublet vaccines. But they'll be able to flex, whether it's the original strain of SARS-CoV-2 or the Omicron strain that's causing a problem to confer protection. Now, the downside scenario of that is might there be a third branch? Might there be a totally new type of SARS-CoV-2 that's unrelated to the original four Greek letters or Omicron? Well, that's the worry, but the virus would need to change substantially again to do that. Now, I've stopped, you know, studying virology is an incredible lesson in humility because the stupidest virus is cleverer than the cleverest immunologist. But you can see why they're now developing Omicron-specific vaccines. I suspect that you and I, Paul, this autumn, will end up being boosted with an Omicron-specific mRNA shot in the UK made by those companies, not the original strain.
0: I think this is where a lot of the confusion comes from, though, because the advice to get boosted for a third or a fourth dose for vulnerable people over 50 has already gone out, and that that program is already underway. Yet those vaccines aren't available yet. So, so, so it. But our they haven't our gone through a regulatory. Yeah, our government's says. getting this wrong. Should should they be yeah. saying actually? Let's not vaccinate people for a third or a fourth time now. Mm. Let's wait until September, October, November when we've got a new vaccine Mm. and do it then, because then it, it may actually have a much better impact on society overall in terms of preventing infection and symptomatic disease.
1: Well, I'd say two things about that. I mean, one of the things that's been very unclear in the pandemic is the messaging. But if I was responsible for the messaging, I'm not sure I could do a better job But only three days ago, the CDC changed its mind about a second booster. That's a fourth shot, saying everyone over 50 should have one. It's really, really hard because we're also trying to couple this with the fact that you don't know when the next wave may come. And there will be waves, number one. You don't know what the virus will be exactly at that time. We don't have regulatory approval for the Omicron-specific shots and vaccine immunity wanes. So to be clear, I mean, you said we weren't gonna talk about monkeypox, but just as, as an aside, elderly people will clearly be very vulnerable to monkeypox, but they ain't gonna get it because they've had the smallpox vaccine, which protects them for life as a live attenuated vaccine. An issue with the mRNA vaccines and other vaccines seems to be waning immunity after four to six months. Having too many vaccines doesn't seem to be too much of a problem as far as we can understand. So, I actually think the guidance is fine that have a booster now and then this winter have an Omicron specific one as well. Well, that brings us on to an interesting, interesting uh,
0: uh, next point which is, is really talking about the perception of vaccination amongst the the general population so one of the, the the things the challenges that we face now and you've alluded to this is that because Omicron was so different all these people got second and third shots and often around getting their third shot they then got COVID because they got Omicron and a lot of people are like well what's the point of all these damn shots if I'm just going to get ill anyway you know and and a couple of people made the raw observation which is, is purely um, coincidence that actually you were more likely to get Infected in some ways, if you've been vaccinated, probably because you were being less cautious because you thought you were protected, and therefore you're more likely to sort of pick it up in the community. But if we look at what's going on in the world, for example, you you know, 18 months ago, the conversation was all about manufacturing capacity and access to vaccines. If we look now, Serum Research Institute in India, the world's biggest manufacturer of vaccines, it was making the Oxford vaccine in India for the COVAX program, the, 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 the UN program. They stopped making it in December. They've got some 200 million odd shots in inventory. They literally cannot give them away. And we're hearing about stockpiles going out of date all around the world, uh, you know, from different states in the US through to, to countries that have barely vaccinated their population. There seems to be a growing reluctance amongst people. You know, what's the point? COVID doesn't make you sick anyway. Yardy yardy yard, as you say so so are, are we h- how do we how do we overcome that Be- because to your point the vaccines the vaccines wane we're not out of the woods about strains that potentially could circulate through the community likely is not if they do they'll, they'll they'll pick off the most vulnerable in society these are the things that inevitably happen but for the majority of people who've already had prior infection exposure or some sort of vaccination, they don't really need to worry about COVID. So how do you motivate those people to get vaccinated? Do they need to get vaccinated or we just need to focus on the most vulnerable given that the ability of these vaccines to prevent transmission is quite low? I know there's a lot in that question, but your thoughts?
1: There's obviously now a massive excess of vaccines. There's also a massive excess of misinformation, which there's been throughout the pandemic. Anyone looking at the data can clearly see that the vaccines prevent severe hospitalizations and deaths. It's a lot of people are talking about next generation vaccines that enhance mucosal immunity, particularly nasal vaccines. We saw in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine this week, a very interesting paper from Cancino in China, where they boosted the previous adenoviral two-shot vaccination program with a nasal vaccine, which was really, really interesting. But in terms of going forwards, one, one thing that's happened throughout the pandemic is, has been, a, if you like, a rheostat, a control equilibrium with regards to our natural behavior. So everyone's seen infections increase, hospitalizations increase, and people have adjusted accordingly, stayed at home more, gone out less, been vaccinated. And I actually think the behavioral response to the virus has actually been really impressive in the West. Certainly in Europe, I'm not so sure about America and certain, if you like, Republican states. But I think the reality is is that most elderly people who are most at risk are happy to have repeated vaccinations. I think for middle-aged or younger people, they'll, they'll actually modify their behaviour accordingly to the threat that they see. And thus far, more recently, I think it's actually been a very appropriate response. Um, I don't think we're going to be locking down again ever, actually. And I don't think repeated vaccinations are harmful. And I think it's up, up to the individual, but the people that are the most vulnerable, elderly people, will have repeated vaccination so i'm not i'm not worried from that respect and if other people want you know are happy to live with it that's entirely their choice and and let's talk about this because it's an important subject let's talk about this
0: repeated vaccination uh, point so why wh- why are you so relaxed about that you know notionally if if the if the virus is drifting genetically all the time and as you say, we've we've almost jumped to what could 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 be described as a different kind of clade of virus. Now we're not in the same group that we were in before with the, with the Omicron and its descendants. We, if, if we keep vaccinating people with the wrong thing, is there any kind of risk that the immune system becomes used to being stimulated by the wrong kind of antigen, and then it just produces the wrong sorts of antibodies in 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 response to COVID? You don't get neutralizing antibodies, and then we get we get problems, is, is that a theoretical risk? I think is... it's
1: a theoretical risk. Look, it's a molecular arms race and it always is in virology between us and the infecting virus. SARS-CoV-2 is an incredibly clever virus and the reason why it's so clever is because A, it transmits asymptomatically and B, it rarely causes significant harm to previously exposed individuals. What we've seen so far, practically speaking, is that the vaccines against W1 stop you getting very sick from Omicron. In China, the vaccines from W1, because they're highly inferior vaccines, won't stop people getting very sick from Omicron. They know that there, which is why 25% of the country's locked down, at least. Depending on how you define a lockdown, it might be even more. And all I can talk about is not the theory, but what we've seen. And the data are really, really clear in terms of the decent vaccines preventing severe disease. But apart from that, the data is very unclear about transmission, about new strains and so on. Is there a theoretical risk of original antigenic sin or producing antibodies against the wrong virus? I think it's unlikely. But it is theoretical. Do you think we just have enough data to, to
0: dismiss those to, to a large extent? At this to a point? large extent, yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about China. China's come up a couple of, of, of times already and as you say it's the it's the sort of um manufacturing engine of the global economy, as we know. Um it's a pretty to to many Westerns I think terrifying, <laughs> terrifyingly autocratic uh, society and, and we know the situation on the ground for a lot of people is they're effectively locked up. Some people are locked up in the factories where they work and they have been for months in order to keep the uh, economic machine ticking over. But we're, we're seeing in all the data um, economic production is down, the economy is, is, is suffering, you know, property transactions, all the normal kind of things that go on in, in daily life. Are a problem you and i know there isn't an effective healthcare system for the vast majority of people in china only if you live in really in a tier one city do you have even the possibility of accessing what we would define as adequate healthcare as you said their vaccines are not very good they haven't bothered particularly enforcing vaccination amongst the elderly and most vulnerable and they're very dismissive of the vaccines
1: because they know they don't work very well Anyway, I'm not sure that's why. I think they believe in traditional Chinese medicine, and because of a zero COVID policy, why do you need a vaccine? Why do you need a vaccine? It's something nobody's got
0: yeah So, so, so we're in this interesting situation where they are self-harming through the policy that they have. But the alternative is to admit your vaccines don't work, import vaccines from those horrible American people, and then have a mass vaccination of your of your country, which is effectively an admission of failure for the government because you're turning back on the policy you're
1: talking about in the government
0: well yes and uh yet we have this important uh uh, congress coming up in november at the end of the year and any kind of a vault fast from senior leadership seems very unlikely before then so so what 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 would you do if 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 you had if you were advising the chinese government and 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 when would you be doing it and then against that what do you think is realistic
1: so i think these senior government is ideologically tied to zero-COVID policy. And this latest strain of Omicron is 35% more transmissible than BA1, which itself was 30% more transmissible than Delta, which itself was more, and so on. Compounding. I think case counts are relevant in China, because they're going to be very low, and the minute they open up, they're going to increase. I think that you can look at individual statistics of individual cities. So, for example, in Shanghai, only 60% of over 80-year-olds have been vaccinated fully, whereas in Peking, it's 80% of over 80-year-olds. Thus, maybe explain the lockdown differences between the different places. I mentioned the paper in Lancet Respiratory Medicine of a nasal adenoviral booster to the previous adenoviral vaccines. And there's a lot of vaccine programs In phase one, phase two, phase three trials led by Abergern and Wolvax, which has an mRNA vaccine, which seems to have an unusual side effect profile, including a low white blood count and fevers in, in almost everyone. I, despite dissenting voices, for example, a senior Chinese politician visiting university last week without wearing a mask... Despite dissenting voices, I don't see how they can open up. Before the Communist Party Congress this November that you mentioned, I can't see senior government being anything other than risk-averse. And I'm aware of many discussions there about white labeling Western vaccines. But consumers want to know where it's come from. As you know, there's been a deal since early 2021 between Fosun Pharmaceuticals and Pfizer or between BioNTech. But apparently the Chinese FDA wanted to know all the details about manufacturing. So that became a bit of a sticking point. So it's not entirely as everyone presents, but they're clearly between a rock and a hard place between an immovable object and an irresistible force. And without vaccinating more people, I don't see how there can be any other change right now. I don't see what they can do. I don't see how they can open despite, so on the one hand, everyone says it's untenable. They can't continue the economic damage, the damage to GDP. We've got to keep Chinese exports open. Everyone's moving away from China now. What are they going to do on the one hand? On the other hand, they, because of arrogance, pride, You know, admitting their vaccines aren't that good, other reasons, a combination of all of the above, they won't have a white-labeled Western vaccine. And so I'm pleased I'm not the one advising them because my advice would be to vaccinate the population with decent vaccines. Also, if you look at their booster program now, it's coming a long way after the primary vaccination program. Who knows what antibodies people are left with? Um, various incentives are being tried. You've just got such a huge number, such a huge absolute number of elderly people who are essentially unvaccinated against an ideology that zero COVID, the zero COVID policy is essentially enshrined against the third point, which is an incredibly transmissible variant, much more so than the original Wuhan strain, probably twice as transmissible. So elected government officials in places are being told to lock down places. And with that, people have still been dying of COVID or with COVID or lack of food supplies and so on. But if you look at the news out of Shanghai and people not getting food deliveries and struggling to get that, it's not that different to what we had here in some ways in April 2020.
0: Well, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute, but, but because of the transmissibility of the new strain, yeah. th- this, is, this is a game of whack-a-mole where you, you can't keep up. with. But the you can't keep up with because whack-a-mole it, yeah. because
1: of exponential growth in yeah. multiple ca- testing. Test and trace, and their ability to test millions of people in a day, trace contacts of contacts, So rapidly works really well for individual outbreaks. It doesn't work well for multiple outbreaks happening in multiple locations.
0: Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? And and do you think there would be any point in revaccinating everybody with the 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 existing vaccines that they have? I think there's
1: data. There's a recent couple of recent Hong Kong studies showing that three shots of Sinovac protect from severe hospitals. Protect from protect from severe cases with Omicron.
0: So if that's,
1: sorry, if that's the case, why do you think they haven't then started a a mass revaccination program? They have, but I think, as you said, many people don't live in tier one cities. We're talking 1.4 billion people. We've seen, they've they've witnessed Hong Kong on their doorstep where even with Hong Kong's vaccination rate, which was high, many people from Hong Kong having the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine as well, the death rate there. And they're saying that with the transmissibility of it, the only solution is to lock people down. I mentioned five percent of the GDP in the country in lockdown, but, 70, but intercity travels down 75%. So it's clearly a national problem
0: as you say, as well, there are a lot of statistics around what percentage of GDP is impacted. Some people say it's as high as 60%. Wow. Some people say, you know, any number between 20 and, and wow. say we'll never know because right. we're, we're not there and they control the data. And that raises an interesting point. You, you, if you look at Britain as, uh, as an example, you know, there was a lot of criticism of the government response toward COVID. But one of the consequences of the way we've dealt with this is we've had this continuous low level community mm-hmm. transmission and when you look at Hong Kong, for example, versus, you, you know, the UK and what happened with, with with Omicron, do you think that low level continuous exposure has been unintentionally a benefit to yeah. society?
1: A bit like variolation, some people say, and that masks let you get a low dose of a virus so you get sort of auto vaccinated. Probably. I mean, Omicron has been referred to as nature's vaccine and there are papers suggesting that It might be. And there are papers suggesting that the antibody response against Omicron is very poor quality, short-lived, not very strong, all those kind of metrics. I generally trust the latter papers, just in terms of the quality of research that I've seen that Omicron as an infection is not a good vaccine versus having a real vaccine. Because, you know, when viruses infect you, they stun your immune system as well, unlike a vaccination Sorry, Paul, I forgot. Do I think that? So I do, th- I do probably think it has been advantageous to us. Provided that the infection to us hasn't been new. And it's not new in the West anymore. But it's new in many places in China.
0: And you touched on the contentious subject of of, of lockdowns. And, and you said you didn't think we, we'd we'd have another one here. I think there's a separate question of whether or not the the, the, the population as a whole would, 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 would tolerate another one. And the, the challenge we have is when you start looking at all-cause mortality, I don't need to talk to you about cancer statistics. You know those better than uh, anyone that will be listening to this podcast. But uh, there's the secondary things. You know, we're seeing the number of children referred mm. to mental health services in the UK has doubled in the last two years, and there isn't the capacity to deal with that. And that's because during a critical time of... Of of adolescence, when you're trying to develop all those social skills and those important things, or even for very young children being socialised and learning to share, they didn't get those opportunities, Mm. and now you know they're at school, and people Mm. people are struggling to cope. So, do do the the lockdowns are a double-edged sword, very, very clearly. Do do you think, with hindsight, that we use them judiciously?
1: I mean, you know what it's like. If you look at your friends, fifty percent. Or whatever number will be virulently anti-lockdown and other people will just want to stay at home and clean every door handle with an alcohol swab three times a day right just as an extreme it's very difficult to thin you know to thread the wire that makes everyone happy and it's very easy to criticize i actually think on balance, that we've actually done a really good job in terms of the way lockdowns were used, the timing of lockdowns, the types of lockdowns, because there are many different types of lockdowns. Who was locked down, when, where, how? I actually think we did a very good job. Of course, every government's easy to criticise, but even compared to other countries like America and Sweden even, uh, I think our policies were on the whole Driven by science, with some notable exceptions, and I think as a result, hundreds of thousands of lives were saved here.
0: Mm. And and one of the things that nobody talks about anymore is the incredible progress that was made in in treating symptomatic COVID patients admitted to hospital. As you say, the the, the, the case fatality rate, but particularly the hospitalisation fatality rate, has come down immeasurably over, over a very short period of time through people like yourself working collaboratively and openly to share best practice. And and I think one of the things that people in the UK should be very proud of is the tremendous role that we played as a country within that the, the recovery studies and all the different things that we did at your um, university, again, playing a, a leading role along with Oxford in, in, in coordinating all of that with the NHS. So there's, there's a lot to, to, to be tremendously proud of there but let's imagine there is another strain of covid that escapes the current vaccinations and we see another wave of symptomatic disease are you satisfied yourself as a clinician that we've made sufficient progress in treating those patients who are who are suffering from covid to the extent that they need hospitalization oxygen therapy possibly uh, ventilation, that we're not going to see similar waves of, of, of mortality as last time. And within that, is the issue still treatments need to be better? Or, or is it is your concern? Would your concern be more about the physical capacity of the system to give everybody the treatment that they need?
1: You can think of all viruses in a two by two square vaccination treatment. So for HIV, they're great treatments, no vaccination. Hepatitis B, good treatments, good vaccination, hepatitis C, great treatments, no vaccination. COVID, good vaccination, okay treatments. With the new variants, they predictably evade the monoclonal antibodies. Interestingly, at Benevolent AI, we worked to identify host proteins. So our own proteins that the virus needed to get into cells and how we would block that. That's how we came up with baricitinib. So that's variant non-specific, but it's not just about baricitinib or any individual drug. It's about a sum of improvements mm-hmm. from the emotional improvements, such as healthcare workers not being scared of people with COVID, knowing about PPE, increasing numbers of beds, our ability to triage, manage patients, prone positioning, when to use oxygenation, what type of oxygenation, drug combinations, when desvirit baricitinib and others that have led to a dramatic fall in mortality. I still think there's some way to go for hospitalized patients. If you look at the great new drugs out, Paxlovid from Pfizer, Merckx, Molnuprovir, and the antibodies, they only work well in the pre-hospitalization setting. They don't work well for hospitalized patients. For hospitalized patients, in terms of drug therapies, You largely have baricitinib, which is at the top of WHO's evidence list, remdesivir, which doesn't really have a mortality benefit, but shortens hospitalizations, and then for really, really sick people, steroids. Thus, evidence would suggest that we have some way to go in those individuals.
0: And is there, is there a risk now that, again, with the perception of COVID being something that people don't have to worry about, there isn't the resources going into researching better treatments for those hospitalised patients? Or, or, or are you, obviously, you'll be much more aware of what's really going on than, than, than our listeners.
1: Are you satisfied that those efforts are still continuing? They're continuing. But one of the best things about COVID is that most of the efforts focused on stopping severe infections and hospitalizations with the adage that prevention is better than the cure. Now, public health medicine only really receives attention when nothing happens. Um, And so in some ways they don't get congratulated for it, but a lot of congratulations should be given. And as you know, we were one of the first in the world to roll out vaccines nationally. And undoubtedly that saved a lot of lives.
0: Final question um much has been made of criticizing the the lack of pandemic preparedness generally and this isn't just a uk thing this is true across across the world at the government level do you think sufficient lessons have been learned and 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 sort of institutionally memorized such that five or ten years from now if there's a a, an influenza epidemic or something like that, that that we as a society from a government point of view and from a healthcare provision point of view and a public health point of view, will we better able to cope with it than... than,
1: than I'd like to 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 think so. You never really know. Um, Even with monkeypox now, you can see a much calmer, thoughtful, measured response. I don't think people, despite news headlines, are panicking. I don't think there's much to panic about either. But if there is another nasty virus and I'm afraid that because of deforestation, climate change, our relationship with animals, there will be. Um, I'd like to think that the government's response will be much more measured. But whenever we see biologically a pathogen to us that's completely new, that we've never been exposed to, as adults, it's always a big shock to our immune systems. And at the end of the day, there's not a lot you can do about that. When you've been exposed to lots of different things as a baby or a child, it becomes less of a shock to the immune system. But to have a totally new virus, I'm afraid that even the strongest, fittest immune system in the world as an adult finds that very difficult to handle.
0: Justin, as ever, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for your thoughts. Thanks.